Willkommen zum Triage Method Podcast. <lacht> Mit mich, Gary. Und äh, Patrick Farrell. Wie geht's, Patrick? Gary, we're not doing the podcast in German. I don't even know if that was correct. My German's a bit rusty and I just kind of decided last second that, that I was going to say that. But yeah, no, basically me and Patty were chatting earlier Earlier, we were, gonna, we were saying that we might have to start doing, um, you know, a, a Russian episode, a German episode, an Irish episode just to take care of our uh, international audience. Uh, but anyway, you are here at the Triage Method podcast. We are Irish. We speak English. Um, but we will continue to do the podcast in English for the moment. So, Patrick, how are you this week? I am positively fantastic, Gary. Could not be better. It's a beautiful day out. It's been pissing rain all week, but uh, it's a beautiful day out right now. Uh, I have some work to do, but I'm definitely going to go for a walk up the mountains at some stage today. Anyway, that is an aside to what we're actually here to discuss, which is a continuation from the last two episodes. Yes, two episodes? Yes. Yeah, the last two, yeah. two episodes that we've recorded, one on an intro to blood pressure and then one on effectively like training and blood pressure yes yes sir and today's episode is a continuation of that which is basically we'll call it nutrition and lifestyle for blood pressure right now as we've discussed previously with the, the last two episodes and the previous ones to that like there is obviously a lot of background knowledge that goes into you know actually understanding this stuff so i would definitely go back and listen to the last few episodes of the podcast if you haven't already or if you don't want to do that some of the stuff might just be over your head because we're just going to gloss over it rather than just repeating ourselves repeatedly um but i also want to caveat this whole discussion and say that first of all i'm not a doctor gary you're not a doctor i'm not a dietitian you're not a dietitian so we're basically just two lads chatting absolute fucking shit so with that caveat out of the way The next caveat I want to say is we are also going to discuss this from the point of view of someone who has high blood pressure and also then someone who has, we'll call it normal blood pressure um, or blood pressure in the normal range. And obviously we're talking about diet and lifestyle stuff. So there is stuff that you can, we'll say, focus on. I'm not going to say prioritize um, if you have normal blood pressure and ensure or potentially ensure that you don't get high blood pressure in the future. Basically, we're going to talk about it from those two points of view. You've got normal blood pressure. You want to make sure that, you know, you're 20 now and everything is good, but you want to make sure that you're 50 and everything is good. So what can you do like right now as a preventative um, for high blood pressure in the future? Um, and then also we're going to talk about it from the perspective of, okay, I have, I noticed that I have high blood pressure. I want to start getting things under control what should i start thinking about in conjunction with talking to your doctor uh yes sir so yeah that's the way you should always listen to these episodes is that we're just two lads who are trying to uh really rely on information that is useful uh for you the user so basically um to start off this conversation one of the things that i want to make clear is that like As we said in the last podcast, blood blood pressure is fundamentally something that you're looking at um, as a surrogate marker for some sort of endpoint or clinical event. So basically the goal of trying to reduce your blood pressure or not have high blood pressure in the first place is so that you can reduce 
you know, things like uh, stroke, the associated uh, complications that come with that, potentially death, um, along with things like heart attacks and other diseases, um, fundamentally cardiovascular disease is what we're talking about. So basically what you're trying to do is reduce cardiovascular risk. So when you start to think about, okay, what does a diet look like that's good for blood pressure? You're not just looking at how the diet or the lifestyle affects blood pressure. You're also looking at how it might affect things like uh, your blood lipids. You know, how does this affect your LDL levels? How does this affect your blood glucose, your HbA1c, other markers of metabolic health? Because if you're only looking at one of these single variables, you can get sidetracked. And I think that's one of the things that's important here is that when you start to think about blood pressure, people often think in terms of just, oh, what foods can I add to my diet to improve my blood pressure? As if you just kind of add one thing and that fixes everything else. And that's not necessarily the case. Rather, when we start to talk about nutrition as it relates to blood pressure or cardiovascular risk in general, we're basically going to be kind of focusing on the overall pattern of the diet you could say and like that you have an overall healthful diet some things in there will be you know subtraction like not consuming excessive amounts of processed foods and some of those things will be addition in the form of maybe adding more fruits and vegetables to your diet but you always have to focus on the diet as a whole how it relates not just to effects on blood pressure as an isolated measure but how it relates to body weight to blood glucose regulation uh, to cholestrol cholesterol and lipids to blood pressure itself etc so all of these things come together uh, to confer your actual cardiovascular risk and that's ultimately what we're concerned about yeah like reductionism is a beneficial framework for thinking about stuff or starting the understanding of stuff but you shouldn't yeah. be so caught up in terms of just focusing on one variable or one little system or one little thing like that that doesn't happen in the, the human body that's not how life itself works you know so while it is good for building and understanding it's only you know part of the the larger puzzle it's like you have a jigsaw and you just are looking at one piece and you think that that's the whole thing that's it's just not it fits in with the whole thing but you actually have to assemble that jigsaw and get the benefits and again you can be looking at a few different jigsaw pieces and being like i'm going to do this this and this but again it has to actually be put down and fill out the the jigsaw itself and um, so with all that in mind where do we start thinking about this stuff and probably when we're talking about the diet the easiest way to start thinking about this stuff is in terms of quantity right? We'll get to the quality aspect in a second, but the quantity aspect, right? Because I personally think this is one of the uh, bigger hitters with all heart disease stuff, which is kind of just glossed over. Um, but, you know, it does actually permeate into all of the heart disease things and all of the heart related stuff that we're obviously talking about now. And even though you think like calories, how are that, how is that affecting, you know, my heart health and um, it is doing that by virtue of being somewhat of a proxy for body composition um, and what i mean by that is you know if you are over consuming calories that generally leads to uh an accumulation of fatty tissue um, and then also uh, an increase in different um we'll call them products in your bloodstream and again like gary touched on some of them but again even if it's just uh you know lipids in your in your blood you know just from consuming food like it, it's still in your blood it still has to be moved around it still is contributing to all of the stuff that you know we're talking about um so calories are are, are the start point for this whole discussion and if, 
we don't actually need to go extremely in-depth with this because it's very easy to understand. You just need to consume a calorie-appropriate diet that leads you to be at a, we'll call it a quote-unquote healthy weight for, you know, your your population, you know, whether that is you are male, female, you know, 20 years old, 30, 40, 50 years old, you just need to be within a healthy weight range and a healthy body fat range. Now, obviously, we have the bias of saying that, you know, ideally, we would have a, a healthy muscle mass range <laughs> as well. But mm-hmm. even then, you know, that's, that's a little bit more theoretical. And while we can say like, yeah, that will definitely help with, um, you know, all this heart disease stuff. Um, like that's a little bit of our bias because I don't think that that's as conclusive as, you know, it's not like build two kilos of muscle and your blood pressure risk goes down by 20%. Like, I don't think that's you know very clearly delineated. However, what we do know is, you know, lower levels of body fat, obviously to a point, like I'm not talking about 3% body fat here, you know, but we're, we'll call it within that quote unquote healthy range of body fat, which is, you know, fairly a large range like we could even say for men it's like eight to twenty percent you could say you know and that's like obviously a, a fairly big range but once you're within within that and um, you're you're in a, a pretty good place and um, now obviously again even within that that's just an average you could be at 12 percent and that's too much for you as an individual you know so again it this this is just generic advice and you still have to individualize it and you you are not the the generic you know average you are you as an individual so it has to be individualized to you um but basically you need to manage your calories and we've talked about this multiple times so we're not going to hammer home on this but you need to manage your calories in such a way that it leads you to have a healthy body weight and a healthy body composition again whatever that means for you as an individual um, but I think that's the the first thing you need to nail down when you are considering blood pressure, either from the perspective of you want to ensure that, you know, you don't get high blood pressure or blood pressure or heart disease issues in the future. Like if you're in your 20s and you're like, well, what can I do to ensure that, you know, I live well and strong into my 90s, my hundreds, like we want to. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, one of the things is to manage your, your body weight and body composition. Um, and the way you do that is obviously, you know, training is one way, um, but also managing your caloric load so that you are not accumulating fat over years. So if you are in your 20s and you're like, yeah, my my heart, my blood pressure is all good right now, like you still need to be thinking of, okay, am I eating a calorie appropriate diet for my activity level and for, you know, my overall health you know and again there is a large range with this which you can be healthy but even within that range you can still make beneficial changes like say you are 20 percent as a male and you're like yeah like my blood pressure is good and obviously you can still make beneficial changes to your body composition and you would hope that that would then lead to better health outcomes in the future especially if you are on the higher end of that range and that's not to say that you can be on the higher end of the range and not be healthy what i'm saying is you you have less leeway then like if you're 20 percent, and we're saying 21 percent is like you know you're you're kind of moving into the territory like that's a you know you've only got one percent to play with you're on the very end you're on the line whereas if you're eight percent and you gain one percent body fat like 
your 9%, you still have a, a huge buffer between it starts getting into an issue. Now, again, these numbers are somewhat arbitrary and they do need to be specific to you, but you, you do need to, to dial it into, or you need to be thinking about it mm. if you are trying to manage your, your blood pressure risk, we'll call. Yeah, no, it, it is super important as well, because this is actually something that, me, I remember me when I was when I was living with you a couple of summers ago, 2017. We were walking to the shop one day, and one of the things that we came with that we were discussing, we were saying like, isn't it funny how literally like as much as you know people like to mock you know the idea that oh it's just calories in calories out that when you start to look at all the diseases that are like you know non communicable diseases, diseases that are causing like the vast majority of morbidity and mortality today and are increasing in numbers, that fundamentally they all do come back to excess calories in the diet like you know you can have disease of prosperity exactly you know diseases of modernity and you can come back to the idea that you know you look at you look at the the diet the diet tribes and you look at people who are arguing about carbohydrates and fats and you know and they're you know you have carnivore people saying that you don't need vegetables in the diet and you have all these kind of these nuanced arguments about things like uh, lectins and and anti-nutrients and all of these real nuanced nutritional variables um, that people argue about when fundamentally what it comes back to like a lot of the the real problems are the result of increased energy availability that people have the ability to access hyper palatable really tasty high calorie foods whenever they want like that is fundamentally it and that's fundamentally the problem um that that we are dealing with in the west but increasingly across the whole world you know it's certainly not uh, just the west and it's something that's going to become an increasing problem um f- for decades to come because you know one of the th- one of the interesting things from my understanding anyway that that happened you know if you look at like the the typical quote-unquote western development you know we had increasing energy availability and availability of these types of foods which was somewhat coupled with um the advancement of our healthcare systems as well so relatively advanced healthcare systems so as a result although we're very poorly equipped to actually handle um, non-communicable disease epidemics the obesity epidemic if you want to call it that um, and cardiometabolic disease associated with that we also have a higher level of healthcare advancement to at least somewhat deal with it you know whereas in developing countries now um in 2020 although they're having you know these obesity problems as well increasingly and cardiometabolic disease problems um, they've got basically the increase in er- energy availability and these diseases of modernity without being coupled to the increases in, in advancement in advancement in healthcare systems and the interesting thing about that is that a lot of the philanthropists you know this is going a massive side, side track but a lot of the philanthropists um, that will donate to things like vaccine research for infectious diseases you don't actually have that same level of investment because it's not like a one cause one treatment uh, paradigm so you've got complex treatment paradigms needed to try and manage these diseases so basically the point there being that you know when you look at like bill gates donating vaccines to developing countries and it's like absolutely amazing outcomes we we just don't we're not going to see that when it comes to these non-communicable diseases so in decades to come these are really 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 big problems and they all come back to as you say patty too many calories you know it's it seems reductionistic and it is because they're the result of complex systems but but there you go that's that's what we're dealing with 100 percent um and it, it like it's a it's a hard thing to to deal with because so many other things impact it and yes. as a result you can then be led down 
the the wrong path I, i'm hesitant to say wrong because obviously ultimately it becomes back to the right path but what i mean by that is you know like you could be in the the carnivore tribe or you could be in the you know really low carb tribe or whatever but ultimately it leads to a reduction in calories and then you start getting the benefits of that and all of a sudden you're like oh this you know very specific diet works and to an extent i I agree with that because obviously there are like there's a huge amount of variability between every individual and that leads to a situation where different food intakes you know based on your personality based on you know your environment based on you know how you were raised all that kind of stuff and um, different foods may lead to overconsumption. you know and that's just there's not unless you are actively tracking calories which the vast majority of people are not um, you're you're just going to end up in a caloric excess, right? And that could be for you, carbohydrates, you know? Um, that's not to say that carbohydrates are bad for everyone, but for you, they could lead you to a situation where you just don't adhere to a calorie-appropriate diet. So something like a low-carb diet might be the perfect solution for you as an individual to eat a calorie-appropriate diet, you know? So I don't want it to ever seem like we are, you know, bagging on or giving out about these different diets, types you know if they ultimately lead to you as an individual eating a better diet uh, for again for you um, and eating a more calorie appropriate diet then that's that's the goal ultimately like i don't care if it's a i don't know fucking seaweed diet that you're doing as long as you're getting the nutrients you need to get and it's sustainable and results producing for you then who really cares? Like, ultimately, that's the goal. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, my diet is better, your diet is better, you know, I'm, I'm saying that there are obviously principles, we'll call them first principles, from which you can understand all dieting patterns. And one of the big hitters of that is, you know, the caloric load of the diet, relative to, you know, the caloric expenditure of the individual. But uh, it doesn't really matter how you actually ultimately end up portioning out that caloric load you know i don't again i don't care if you only eat fruit literally it's irrelevant to me if you get all the nutrients that you you need um, and you eat a calorically you know balanced we'll call it or appropriate diet then you're going to get the majority of the benefits from the, just managing calories and this is again appropriate for understanding your blood pressure risk and understanding any of these heart disease cardio fucking risks um diseases cardio uh health stuff like if you eat a calorie appropriate diet and you engage in you know physical activity you get so many benefits that that it's just such a, a no-brainer to do theoretically like obviously in practice it's hard because you know stuff like chocolate tastes fucking delicious um so you know it, it's understandable why it's hard to do but if you can take nothing from any podcast we ever do, except for the fact that you need to figure out a dieting strategy that allows you to eat a calorie appropriate diet, then you will have one. You know, that's that's the, the key takeaway. Yes, you can really get, you know, dive deep into the subtle nuances of everything. And like, I love doing that. Gary loves doing that. But you as an individual listening to this, even if you are a trainer, um, that's not necessarily what you need to do to impact and you know, get results. You just need to find a dieting style, dieting strategy that allows you to get uh, an appropriate level of calories for your activity level. And all of a sudden you've won. Like that's, 
everything after that is just like, yeah, we're tweaking this to, you know, maybe optimize this a, a little bit better. You know, maybe you don't have enough protein in that calorie amount. Let's see if we can tweak this a little bit to, you know, get that. But bringing it back to the, the question at hand, if you control for calories, you eat a calorie appropriate diet that either results in you losing weight if you need to do it or potentially gaining weight, gaining weight if you need to do it. Um, and then being in that healthy weight range for you as an individual, then you've done a huge amount for quote unquote curing your high blood pressure, but also you've done a huge amount for, you know, preventing high blood pressure in the future. Yeah, hundred percent. And I suppose like the, the clarification there that I know you're alluding to is that like one of the, the unfortunate things that, that gets conflated is the idea is that calories are something that you really do need to pay, pay attention to and the actual practice of tracking calories. People assume that they're basically synonymous with each other and that if you're making the case for calories being really important that you need to actually go and track them. And that's absolutely not the case. And I think this is one of the, the places where I think some of the evidence-based people in the fitness sphere um, potentially create more conflict than is needed among the diet tribes at times because like you have to make the case that like low carbohydrate diets like if a low carbohydrate diet is what actually is helping you to you know manage your raw calories and even though you've never tracked them um you you just manage your diet in this way like that's a totally valid approach the same thing when it comes to to fasting interventions you know if you're if you fast for three days a month and that's your thing or you fast one day per week or a certain amount of hours in the day and that's your way of man managing overall calories and you've seen definite health benefits to that then we need to take that seriously and say that oh that's actually a, a valid intervention and that these these interventions actually are available because i think one of the things that always happens is that when you look at potentially uh, different different responses in studies to low carbohydrate diets or to low fat diets or whatever it kind of comes back to this summary that oh yeah none of this actually matters once calories are controlled for it's all fine however what you have to realize is that people do respond differently and people prefer different things people have different food preferences you know different cultures etc and ultimately if you can find a way that works for you to manage overall calorie intake you're winning you know and and you don't need to to there's no point just saying oh but if you just track calories you could eat whatever you want because that's not the goal the goal is just to get to the end point that you're able to manage it you know not to eat whatever you want 100 right so i think people understand now manage your calories in a way that allows you to eat a calorie appropriate diet that allows you to have good body composition and good body weight whatever that means for you as an individual okay so that's that's the big hitter with all of this stuff, right? The next thing in particular with regards to blood pressure, it's often talked about is salt, salt intake, right? Now, if you go back to the previous um, two yes, podcasts, I think it was actually really the first one that is probably more appropriate. So two podcasts ago, um, we were talking about how salt has a role in impacting you know, blood pressure. Now, this is both a transient thing and a chronic thing, right? However, it kind of gets more of a bad rap than it needs to because healthy, quote unquote, healthy individuals hear the, the information given to people with high blood pressure and then assume that that applies to them. So you'll hear people with high blood pressure being told to you know, reduce their sodium intake which is a good idea if you have high blood pressure. But then individuals who are, again, quote unquote, normal, 
will also take that advice on thinking that it is uh, high blood pressure protective, which isn't necessarily the case. So Gary, can you talk a little bit more about salt intake and blood pressure? Yeah, so like one of the things that, that I'd like to kind of make clear here is that right, we're, we're, we're talking to a fitness audience, you know, and we're talking to people who are probably already very uh, conscious of their diets, you know, and one of the things that actually happens a lot of the time when people first get into trying to improve their physique, especially if you come in from that kind of bodybuilding side, you know, that's how initially how I got into fitness and how I was exposed to nutrition information. It was through that lens of building muscle, losing body fat, getting as lean as you can. And a lot of the practices um, in that world um, where a lot of our nutrition uh, information kind of trickles down from relates to it basically trends back to the kind of clean eating uh, trend that idea that you know let's have you know plain chicken plain broccoli you know plain meats like no seasonings that that kind of thing like the more boring your meal is the better that's kind of where it went where basically a lot, a lot of the nutrition practices came from um, and one of the things that happens uh, when you start to adopt that kind of clean eating approach is that, you know, you don't use sauces, you don't use seasonings. Like, obviously, people are more open to that idea now, um, but there's still many bodybuilders who don't. So as a result, people often don't even salt their foods. You know, they won't even salt their foods at all. They won't add any seasonings, any salts and or any sauces. And because they don't actually consume any sort of, uh, what was I going to say, any processed foods as well, they're actually eliminating, like, an incredible amount of sodium from the diet. So, you know, in those individuals, you could make the case that adding salt to your food is actually fine and it could potentially even benefit your performance. You know, if you're talking about active, healthy individuals who have no problem with their blood pressure, they're eating very low sodium diets, then that's not necessarily something that you need to strive for. Especially what, if you are essentially losing sodium through like some like sweat, yeah. you know, like if you again, like are a very active individual or you live in a hot country, you're sweating all the time. Like that is one of the ways that you get rid of sodium from the body and you get rid of salts from the body so again you can you can imagine the case someone that's like i want to get lean i want to you know really push you know body composition performance i want to build muscle you know all that stuff and they're really pushing themselves in the gym working up a sweat not eating salt not eating processed food you can actually be in a case where you probably are a little bit salt deficient yeah that can definitely happen and i think that's that's something that's just important to to get out there immediately because it, it is definitely the case that there are people that listening listening to this podcast who probably consume far far less um than the recommended uh, sodium kind of upper threshold so probably something that a lot of people just don't need to worry about and the key thing there being that you know a lot of the salt that is contributing to high sodium intakes um is not coming through the addition of your you know your sea salt or your table salt like that's just that's not the actual problem i think it's it's around 70 percent, at least in the us 70 percent of the contribution to total sodium intake actually comes in the form of prepackaged and processed foods you know so if you're consuming lots of ready-made meals you're eating lots of um I don't know, baked goods and stuff sometimes. If you're eating lots of just generally packaged processed foods, crisps, you know, particularly bad. If you're eating lots of foods like that all the time, then you're going to have a very, very high sodium intake independent of whether or not you, you actually add salt to your food. So that's one of the funny things you often see happen is that people consume like ridiculous, like even if you're consuming, you know, sometimes healthy uh, quote-unquote healthy pre-made meals some of them can be really high in sodium and someone might think they're doing a great job by you know just cutting all the salt out of their out of their diet but they're only cutting the salt that they actually add so it really doesn't move the needle at all and this is really the reason that this is so uh, context is so important here 
because if you're the individual who is consuming a, a very a whole foods based diet that includes lots and lots of fruits and vegetables, you don't eat lots of processed foods. Um, you're probably going to have a high potassium intake within that context, and as a result, because you don't take in much sodium from the diet itself, you don't add salt to your food, and you've got a high potassium intake. All those things, all those things, contribute to a situation in which you know even if you did add a bit bit of salt to your food, probably wouldn't be a big deal at all. However, if you're the individual who consumes a highly processed diet, lots of junk food, lots of processed food, prepackaged meals, etc., adding food to that or adding further salt to that is just, you know, adding fuel, fuel to the fire because you're already at a ridiculously high sodium intake. So that's really important to get from the get go is that whether or not we say uh, add salt, take away salt totally depends on, on original dietary context, you know. 100% Gary. So with that in mind. If you are a quote unquote normal blood pressure individual, I wouldn't be too worried about salt. Like you can still say like, I think the general recommendation is like total of five grams per day, which is, you know, you're not going to be banging on five grams of salt to, you know, a single meal. If you're like, you know, shaking it out itself, maybe you will. I don't know. Maybe there's some individuals out there that are like, yeah, I fucking love salt. Give me five grams. You and your chips. Uh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, but anyway, you know, um, most people are not going to be, you know, banging a load of salt out on their, their meals. Um, so if you are a, a normal blood pressure individual and you are just trying to be healthy, especially if you exercise, you know, I wouldn't be too worried about your salt intake. You know, you might see, excuse me, a transient rise in blood pressure. Like you have a high salt meal, you might see your blood pressure go up. A little bit after that again i wouldn't be worried about it it's not a chronic increase in blood pressure right however if you are someone that has higher blood pressure it probably does make sense to lower your salt intake and as gary said i would probably be looking first of all to you know sources of processed food in the diet processed meat packaged goods all that kind of stuff you know looking at the salt content of those packages themselves and then you know reducing it where possible that would be a definite go-to if you do already have high blood pressure, right? You can also, you know, swap out things such as, you know, if you're like, oh, I don't really eat a huge amount of fruit and vegetables, um, but I like to have salt on my meals, then you can swap it out for something like a low salt or a potassium sodium salt, um, and you can get an increase in potassium then relative to the sodium that you eat, which is, you know, potentially beneficial for all of this blood pressure stuff. Um, obviously again if you do have high blood pressure I would be talking to my doctor about this stuff yes um, but probably would be a good idea to limit your salt intake at least until you get your blood pressure under control and in a good place where then you can start really playing with you know is it three grams that you can have is it uh, you know or do you need to have you normally salt two of your meals per day maybe you only salt one you know like stuff like that you start playing with it once you've got stuff under control you know, um, so I think that covers salt. Do you have anything else you want to say on salt? Yeah, just just a quick a quick note would be that we did talk a little bit about we kind of alluded to why sodium or salt might be important um, in the previous episode. So go back and listen to some of the basic blood pressure physiology stuff, and that might make a bit of sense. But one just clarification for people is um, 
there is a difference between sodium and salt because this does cause quite a bit of confusion. So generally what we're talking about, we're talking about um, salt itself is sodium chloride. So basically NaCl, you'll have an equal amount of sodium and chloride within that. So what that means then is that if you're consuming, like Patty said, five to six grams of salt, which is generally kind of the, the, the recommended level, that basically means that you're consuming between two and 2.5 uh, to three grams of actual sodium. So you'll see sometimes reported on food labels, sometimes there'll be sodium contact content sometimes you might see the actual salt itself and that might be different to what you're actually reading in terms of uh, actual recommendations so do clarify that to yourself basically it's very simple if you read salt and you're going by sodium guidelines cut the salt in half if you're reading sodium and you're going by salt guidelines double it you know pretty simple stuff fair 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 okay so the next one we've actually touched on it a few times is if you this is just good advice. If you have quote unquote normal blood pressure and if you have high blood pressure, um, you need to increase your fruit and vegetable intake, right? Um, again, you get increases in magnesium, you get increases in potassium. It also has other benefits such as you're a scumbag, Gary. I hope everyone who's watching this actually looks at <laughs> what you just did. It's an Easter egg. Um, um anyway, uh just for everyone who's listening, Gary just drank straight from his French press. Um, but anyway, uh, yes, increased fruit and veg. You get an increase in potassium. You get an increase in magnesium. You also get an increase in fiber, which, as we said, the fiber stuff, I don't think that has a huge impact on your actual blood pressure. But as myself and Gary were discussing just before we got on air with this, um, it does have some other effects, which, again, when we look at the whole system rather than just you know just blood pressure it starts having positive effects in other areas such as you know managing your your cholesterol levels your blood lipids that kind of stuff even hormone levels to an extent um and that then has a positive impact on your blood pressure so even though i don't think you know like say supplementing with fiber on its own i don't think that would be a beneficial strategy if you do it in the context of eating more fruit and veg and getting your fiber intake up to at least the minimum um which is you know depending on who exactly you ask it's 10 to 15 grams per thousand calories you eat um getting it up there is going to have beneficial effects on your blood pressure especially if it is coming from you know an increase in fruits and vegetables like a variety of those because then you also get again as i said the potassium the magnesium but also a whole host of other vitamins and minerals which you know we might not have a single study to you know show the role of one of those vitamins in blood pressure but that's not to say that they don't actually in a very minuscule way contribute and again if we're talking about you know seeing significant changes in blood pressure you know every little does help you know so even though we might not know the the, the benefit of a single nutrient or it might be so minuscule that you know it's not really worth measuring in a you know scientific context and um, that doesn't mean that it's not significant for you as an individual who's trying to you know i don't know live um would probably be something that i would definitely consume um so fruit and veg it's good you know again you can go by that five fruit and veg per day like we like to always say like you know five to twelve and um, i think that's a a more beneficial strategy um but again that's obviously context specific like don't think you're a failure if you're like look i only get five fruit and veg it's you know that's all i get per day like don't think like 
you're not getting 12, so you're you're not going to make it. You are going to make it. Um, but there probably is benefits to a slightly higher inc- or an increase in your veg intake above that. That's not to say your diet always has to be like that, but especially if we are considering blood pressure, it's probably a good idea. Is there anything else to say on the, the fruit and veg side of things, Gary? Yeah, no, like, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, like, unless you're in some very weird corners of the nutrition sphere on the internet, like, just listen to your mother, listen to your granny, like, eat your fruit and veg. Like, it's pretty basic. I do think that um, according to, I think it was a report last year, I think Ireland has, I think, the, the highest intake of, of fruit and veg in Europe. So there you go, the Chad Ireland. Don't know how true that is, but I'm going to take it as a win. Yeah, fucking love to see it. Now, if we just start really prioritizing getting farmers to a nice good wage and stop yeah. saying stuff like getting rid of the the herd that would be nice and um, ireland ireland is a fucking beautiful country for growing food it's estimated don't necessarily quote me on this but it is estimated that ireland could produce enough food to feed 35 million people we don't have too 35 easy. million people huh too easy yeah we don't have 35 million people in ireland so that means that we can be a an exporter and that means that we can all be more prosperous and all we have to do is incentivize farming anyway that's an aside um but increase your fruit and veg it's a good idea get it in some wexford strawberries there they're in in season now i'm growing growing some blueberries at my back garden but anyway that's a complete aside um you have nothing else to say on fruit and veg no like just eat your fruit and veg man just do it pretty straightforward next thing then is omega-3 intake and this again is one of those ones that it just has the overall cardio benefits and that may not necessarily mean that oh this directly impacts your blood pressure in a more like we'll call it a mechanistic way and although i do think there are some things that we could say are definitely attributable to omega-3 i just think that getting your at least bare minimum uh, omega-3 intake which is again depending on who you ask we'll say three to five grams of actual you know the omega-3s not just you know i'm talking about epa and dha and um, not just like oh i took a fish oil tablet and it said it was a gram that doesn't mean that you actually got a gram of omega-3 yeah. um the easiest way is to just eat some fatty fish two times per week is generally a good good shout um, and if you're not doing that, then again, it probably makes sense to have some omega-3 in the diet, fish oil capsules, or if you are of the more plant-based um, persuasion, you could go for something like a krill oil um, or an algae. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. Uh, getting it up to, again, three to five grams per day. Again, fat can be stored. So, you know, you can go over the week or even the month if you really wanted to. Like you could just have a weekend where you just all you eat is fatty fish you know and that can probably work for you for you know a month or two um so that's a a beneficial strategy if you are trying to get your blood pressure to a good place but also if you're looking for general cardio protective benefits i think just getting your three to five grams of fish oil per day like that's it's only a beneficial strategy and even if it's not you know perfectly aligned in terms of we can have this real mechanistic reasoning for it really impacting high blood pressure again i do think there are some things that we could argue with that and it does have other properties as we said looking at the, the organism as a whole and um, in terms of 
improving you know the the blood quality but also the cell quality that ultimately leads to better blood pressure as an aside yes sir eat your salmon yes the salmon of knowledge gary yeah i think that's pretty that's pretty simple you know we can kind of we can move on from that what what did you have next on the the on next the thing on the list and this is a one that uh, you have a bit of an anecdotal experience with and this is caffeine intake so caffeine tell me is caffeine going to <clears throat> destroy my blood pressure yeah so caffeine is one of those one of those ones that had that has had basically a kind of a back and forth uh, with cardiovascular disease over the years and that you know people have always kind of been like there's there is a lot of research into to caffeine and, and cardiovascular disease and events and blood pressure etc um but, but one of the things that you see is that it's on average like when you start to look at uh caffeine or coffee intake really because um, that's where a lot of it tends to come from um when you start to look at coffee intake and cardiovascular disease and the relationship there you know caffeine comes out or coffee comes out you know pretty good it comes out pretty good when you take that kind of ten thousand foot view and you're just kind of looking from that ten thousand foot view and saying right you know what's the relationship between coffee intake and cardiovascular disease and it seems to be you know at the very at the very least neutral you know that'd be a nice diplomatic take that you know drink your coffee you're you're, you're going to be fine potentially beneficial in some contexts but as i will discuss potentially not so beneficial in other contexts and this is ultimately where things do become a bit more complex, but not so complex that you can't just use your own individual information. So basically like what you see, what you see when you start to look at caffeine is that like, there's a number of different uh, genes that basically affect uh, caffeine metabolism, like lots of them. And this is one of those cases where you're not just looking at a one single like monogenic variation you're not just looking at a single variation in a gene but you're looking rather at uh, associations between the presence of you know changes in different genes and basically what you start to see is that in some individuals with certain genotypes they will be more susceptible to chronically uh, elevated blood pressure in response to caffeine intake or high caffeine intakes. That does seem to be the case, but there's not. It's kind of like a, a relatively new area of research. There's not that much much research on it, but there is enough to say that oh, there might actually uh, be something here because acutely, you know, people do have uh, increases in blood pressure in response to caffeine. It is somewhat of a, a sympathomimic mimetic in that it increases sympathetic nervous system activity so basically creates that kind of bit of a stress response so that can affect um your your blood vessels and your blood pressure but the the general argument then would be that oh just because you know people have uh, increases in blood pressure acutely you know in the short term uh, much like exercise that doesn't mean that that is the case uh, for the long term and that is that is true so people do vary in their acute response but they also vary in the in their chronic response so while you know most people might be just fine drinking their coffee long term it does seem like certain individuals with certain genotypes might be a little bit more susceptible um, to increases in blood pressure long term if they are consuming very high intakes um, of caffeine. So basically, what 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 I would say with that information is to do something along the lines of what I did myself. Like so, last September, basically, um, what I did was I did a kind of a six week period where I consumed no caffeine, um, and I mean no caffeine as in 
like I was having tea and stuff, but for for a habitual coffee drinker, it wasn't very significant. Um, so I would have previously been consuming probably three cups of coffee per day, maybe um, periods of my life where I was consuming a lot more, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight cups at times. Um, but basically, I took six weeks of consuming no caffeine. And between the start and the end, I did see a fairly significant um, reduction in my blood pressure. But the thing is, it's a that's an n equals one experiment i don't know were the conditions exactly the same between day one and uh the end of the six weeks or whatever i did keep most other things the same my body weight was roughly the same so it's not like there was any massive changes in that sense i was training the same amount um but for me uh based on based on that you know i, I was thinking okay maybe i might want to reduce my caffeine intake um longer term so now i try to consume a little bit less caffeine for me that was just an anecdote anecdotal experience but basically what i would take away from that is not necessarily that you need to go and try and do that but rather what we're saying in this whole podcast is do you have high blood pressure do you consume a lot of caffeine if the answer is no my blood pressure is perfect and i consume a lot of caffeine okay cool doesn't matter do what you want you know but if your blood pressure is already high and you're like hey i seem to be doing most things right but i am consuming six cups of coffee a day it might be worth a shot. It might be worth saying, be worth saying, you know, uh, I might actually just pull back the caffeine intake for a while and see what happens. So ultimately, like as an individual, we're not talking about creating guidelines for groups. We're talking about, you know, how you use this information yourself. And ultimately, you need to see, is there a problem? And then go troubleshooting rather than troubleshooting before there's actually a problem, you know, unless we're talking about uh, preventative context. Yeah, and this is this is an easy one to experiment with. First of all, if we just understand that caffeine is, we'll call it a stressor. You know, that might be again a hormetic stressor in terms of it's a beneficial stressor that we adapt to and get you know positive adaptations out of it, which I generally think it is. However, if you are in the context of already a, a high stress environment, it might be the the stress that you know the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, and yeah. um, so that is potentially something to consider you have to consider the rest of your life like how, how is your stress overall is that something you know is the caffeine beneficial like you might be really stressed but the caffeine is something that you're like oh i really enjoyed this it kind of you know soothes me brings me down whatever that that might be the case you know however this is this is actually a really easy one to start experimenting with because what you can do is rather than looking at the, the blood pressure changes what you can do is look at your heart rate changes um, in response to uh, caffeine intake, especially over a chronic period of time. Because obviously caffeine is going to increase your heart rate. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. And you know, for some individuals, especially if it's like a cup of coffee, just a normal cup, you might get an increase in, we'll say five beats per minute. I'm not sure of the exact number, but we'll say it's relatively low, right? However, if you are constantly seeing your heart rate up in the you know, you're just walking around and it's in the 70s, 80s, 90s, maybe not walking around. That's maybe just sitting down. Yeah. It's in the, the 70s, 80s, 90s. You're like, okay, this is this is something that I should be aware of. And if you just, you know, drop back on the caffeine intake or like an easy switch is just to go, right, I'm going to have decaf instead of all the coffees that I normally had. If you're like, I just need to have that little, you know, taste and all that kind of stuff. Um, then swapping that out and assessing how your your heart rate has then changed in response to that gives you a little bit more of an immediate feedback than the the blood pressure changes because you might see some you know the the blood pressure changes on a on a day-to-day -day level but it's actually 
a little bit easier to see the heart rate changes and to actually feel that rather than feeling the, the blood pressure changes, you know? So that's something that I really like to do, like to assess. Again, look at your, your well, call it your resting heart rate um, when you're sitting down during the day, when you're actually awake. And um, when you've normally consumed caffeine, maybe after your third, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth cup, then see where your resting heart rate is with that. And you're like, okay, this is just up at the 90s. Then that's probably not a beneficial strategy long term. You know, so seeing what you can do to get that back down is probably a, a good idea. And again, this goes back to the first thing as well. Like, again, if you drop your body weight to uh, a quote unquote healthy level, that generally also improves your, your heart rate. So, again, you can start seeing that all these things are tied in together. But that's something I really like to do in response to caffeine is see how it affects the heart rate and then make some changes to your caffeine intake based on that because the blood pressure one is very hard to see because it can creep up chronically over years you might not think that it's the the caffeine that's actually doing the you know the, the creeping and you might be like oh yeah it's just it's fine it's just a, the way my my blood pressure is going it's just i'm getting old or whatever but it might actually be the fact that you have 10 cups of coffee per day and this is just you know chronically tipping you up so an easy way to see more like fast changes is to just look at the heart rate see how it responds and if you notice okay normally i have eight cups of coffee per day and you know today i didn't and my resting heart rate was actually 40 beats lower then probably your intake of caffeine is excessive you know like i always notice is like if i have over four cups of coffee per day like for the day after and the, the day after that my heart my resting heart rate is still a little bit elevated than what it normally is like normally if i wake up in the morning depending on how fat i am and how fit i am um, my resting heart rate is somewhere between 35 and 45 right then during the day when i'm just like you know sitting at my desk and stuff it's generally around 45 to 50 you know um <clears throat> But if I notice I have a few extra coffees throughout the day for a few days, especially I'll notice that I'll just be sitting here and my heart rate will be 60, 65, you know, and even if I haven't drank more coffees on that day itself, you know, I notice its effects the, the few days afterwards, you know, so obviously it's still in my system. You know, we can argue again, say that maybe, you know, there's an increased catecholamine secretion in response to it. And, you know, maybe there's some sort of circadian uh, rhythm you know, it's, it's a, it's a, what the fuck is that called? You know, it's a, it's aligning, it's syncing with that. It would normally, you would normally have had a coffee at 12 o'clock for the last three days. So your body's already anticipating that, you know, potentially we could argue all that stuff, but that's, it's irrelevant at the end of the day because it's, I'm noticing the effect and I can easily modulate that by just changing my caffeine intake. Um, and I'm not someone that generally has a huge response to caffeine and blood pressure. However, this is something that you can easily see changing really quickly and then adapt to it. Yeah, 100%. And like, as I, as I failed to say there, you know, I, me I mentioned that we were talking about kind of variations in, in genotype. And the important thing to get there is that like a lot of the, a lot of the, the enzymes that we would be, uh, or the genes and the enzymes that we'd be of interest, that would be of interest there relate basically to your speed of caffeine metabolism, which kind of goes back to what Patty was saying is that, you know, you could be a very fast metabolizer or a very slow metabolizer. You know, you're going to have people at the extremes. You're going to have a lot of people in the center. But the point there being that, you know, you should somewhat be able to kind of tell what sort of response you're having to caffeine. You know, if you're consuming caffeine and it's and you're having like, let's say your last cup at 3 p.m., 
but you're a really slow metabolizer and hence it's still in your blood as you're going to sleep. It could be affecting your sleep, which is then having uh, feed forward effects on your blood pressure as well. You know, so if you're it, basically the point there being that you need to kind of see how do you actually respond to it as well? Because if you're clearly not paying any attention and you're absolutely buzzed out of your mind after a single coffee and you persist in having six cups of coffee per day you're, and your sleep is awful and you're constantly wired, like that's probably not the best idea. But if you're someone who has a cup of coffee and you're like, basically nothing changes other than maybe a little bit of extra focus and your sleep is excellent and, and low stress, otherwise they're two very different contexts, you know? 100%. Now, we've touched on them. These are the last two. And then we touch on, and that is sleep and stress. So again, sleep is one of those things that, you know, it does, if you have poor night's sleep, it does actually increase your blood pressure. And as we discussed in when we're actually talking about blood pressure, like blood pressure changes at different points in the day, you know, um, and obviously there's a, again, the sinking event of sleep that, you know, helps facilitate that. And obviously it's again like correlation causation and um, like which one's influencing which, but either way there is this, you know, synchronicity there is this rhythm to it that is you know synced to the day um but uh what was i going to say yes so if you miss a full night's sleep like you will see increases in blood pressure the next day if you have poor sleep you will see increases in blood pressure the next day again if this is a chronic thing you're going to see changes in your blood pressure chronically you know and so getting a good night's sleep you know it helps with your blood pressure so again if you are someone Again, this is very appropriate if you are, you know, a 50-year-old male and you you just went to your doctor and you're like, oh, you're told you have high blood pressure, you need to, you know, get on this drug, you need to, you know, do these dietary changes and potentially you haven't been thinking about your sleep and you didn't mention the fact that you had, you know, sleep apnea or you didn't even know you had sleep apnea and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that was actually the the causative thing. You know, my diet was actually relatively good. Like, yeah, I'm a little bit overweight. I can, again, control the calories, manipulate that. Um, and obviously that would then potentially help with the sleep apnea. Um, again, it, it does influence quite a lot, helps with quite a lot, as we discussed. Um, but, you know, getting your, your sleep apnea sorted, all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, my blood pressure dropped into a normal range, you know? And again, this influences other things as well, getting your sleep sorted, um, helps with you know mood regulation throughout the day so you're able to handle stress a little bit better and um, you're also able to handle the calories you're eating a little better your insulin sensitivity you know you also make better food choices like again it impacts it's one of those things like calories that it impacts so much you know so doing stuff to get your sleep sorted is one of the big hitters as well that i would consider when considering any disease really um even if it is something like a broken bone you know i'm still like well you need to sleep to help with recovery so it's it's you need to have that on point you know you so see you're going to need to do something to ensure that you're able to get a good night's sleep even in the case of like again a broken bone um so getting that sorted it's a big hitter we'll probably do a few podcasts on sleep itself i'm currently writing some sleep articles um but yeah if you have high blood pressure if you have normal blood pressure if you care about your health Get your sleep sorted. Do you agree, Gary? 100%. And like obstructive sleep apnea is one of those kind of those rare lifestyle related conditions that like if you can just spot it, it's like, boom, 
treated done and you're actually your quality of life hugely improves because basically like you could be walking around particularly like if you are obese or even if you have very high level of muscle mass especially around the neck the traps area if you're walking around you're walking around with obstructive sleep apnea um well not literally walking around with it but if you're you know if your partner says to you that you're not or you you seem to stop breathing in the night or you really struggle during the night and you know you're really fatigued all the time and you know your sleep is you don't wake feeling rested etc and you've got high blood pressure and you've got high blood glucose like if you go and you get a sleep study done and they say okay right you've got obstructive sleep apnea we're going to prescribe you uh with a cpap machine that can like really, really improve the quality of your life and your risk for um, these cardiometabolic diseases. So it is one of those things where it's not a big lifestyle change. It's not overhauling your diet. It's just you 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 spot it, you treat it, and you're you're kind of on your way. Other than having to wear a CPAP when you sleep, like, but um, the trade off is definitely worth. This is one of those things that you actually see a lot in like we'll call them otherwise healthy individuals. Yeah. Um, especially in the like resistance training world, especially if they do use stuff like anabolic steroids where, you know, they've built a considerable amount of muscle, especially around that like neck, upper back type area. Um, And all of a sudden their sleep is just awful. And they're like, oh, I don't know what, what, what's going on with this, you know? Um, Like it is definitely something that you see a lot more often, again, in otherwise healthy individuals, like especially like something like a rugby player, you know, where it's like, oh, this is beneficial to gain mass. Um, and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, my sleep is awful. My recovery is awful shit. So if you do consider it, or if you do think this pertains to you, I would definitely look uh, a lot deeper into it than just going like, oh yeah, like that, that could be the cause. Like I would actually, you know, get a sleep study done, do all that stuff that you need to do, get your CPAP get sorted obviously there are other things that you could potentially do to benefit that but again that's not for this podcast um the final thing then is stress and again this is a pretty straightforward one when you consider again what having listened to the first episode on blood pressure and even on you know the, the heart itself like we know stress it plays a role in this stuff and as we've touched on with you know caffeine intake and stuff like that like again it's a it's a stressor that could potentially transiently lead to increases in blood pressure, but it could also lead to, you know, chronic, especially if it's chronic stress, it could also lead to chronic increases in blood pressure. So do you have anything to say about stress and blood pressure, Gary? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one because like, it's kind of, it's kind of easy a lot of the time to tell people to, oh, you know, you should try and change your diet. You should make these changes or here's how to improve your sleep. But stress, sometimes it's one of those ones where, it's kind of what like what trade-offs are you actually willing to accept and what trade-offs can you accept you know because if you're talking if you're listening to this you know and and you're a mother uh whose you know husband is at you know at work all the time or you know you're a single mother and you've got four kids and you're fully responsible for those kids you know and one of them happens to be sick or has some sort of disability or something and you know you're struggling financially to to make ends meet there's so many stressors in there that are unmodifiable essentially you know and you can say oh meditate for 20 minutes a day but it's kind of one of those things where like you know you have to be realistic about what's actually going to move the needle in these contexts and for some people there are far less uh, modifiable elements of stress and i think that's something you do have to always keep in mind and be empathetic to when you're talking about stress because sometimes you can have like uh 
you know, fitness influencers and stuff talking about the importance of stress and meditation and mindfulness, but they're coming from a position where, you know, maybe they earn their, their money online by making posts and, you know, they're able to go on hot multiple holidays per year or they're paid to go on holidays. And, you know, there, there's very little that they're actually kind of responsible for, um, or the, and that they actually, that would actually cause them to be very stressed. So you have to always be empathetic if you are that person that, you know, other people mightn't actually be able to live like me, you know? Um, and obviously there are always controllables in our lives. And there are cases where you're just willing to accept the trade-off. Like me, for me personally, like, do I think going through, you know, the next four years and subsequent training in medicine while doing triage and training and et cetera, et cetera, while man managing all that stuff, do I think that's a net benefit to my health? No, I don't. But I'm able to accept the trade-off that what I see as being, you know, my kind of, purpose in life you could say are the things that actually motivate me to want to be <laughs> alive in the first place i'm willing to accept that that actually comes ahead of um some elements of my health and that you know if 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 living a more meaningful higher quality life um that where i actually achieve things that are meaningful for me if that means you know taking five years off the end of my life i'm like you know that mightn't be the best but i'm willing to accept that trade-off and that's that's me personally you know you don't have to to accept that at all and and that is that is where that's where stress uh, is at this crossroads for me it is about personal trade-offs your personal your personal life what you have to do what is modifiable etc so with, with all that out of the way because i like to put that caveat there um stress is important uh, chronic stress is definitely uh, not great for your health uh, in this case with with blood pressure in particular like the stress response itself it's it's basically characterized by you know sympathetic nervous system activity you know that's one that's one kind of branch of it and also the um basically the the hpa axis so basically what you've got going on there is you get the release of stress hormones and basically cortisol is kind of the typical one that you'll hear about but what happens with cortisol in particular is one it does upregulate um the alpha 1 adrenoceptors in the blood vessels and these blood these are basically responsive then to uh, circulating uh, catecholamines like patty said so adrenaline noradrenaline basically what happens is then once you get a, a sympathetic nervous system response and you've got this elevated level of cortisol you're now your blood vessels are now actually more responsive you know so they're more responsive they're going to constrict more so you've got this kind of these physiological responses that are leading to um, constriction of your blood vessels and potentially increase blood pressure over time because what you've also got going on when you do have chronic stress is that you've got metabolic changes that you know would reduce your insulin sensitivity that also plays into things like higher blood glucose and basically the big cacophony of metabolic changes that would confer increased cardiovascular risk in general so again it's not just it's not like stress is just bad bad for blood pressure it's your overall cardiovascular risk that's actually um, important here so stress yeah not not fantastic but uh to some degree unmodifiable uh but you should still try to do what you can to to manage your stress whatever that yeah, means just, for you just, just on just on that like even though you're saying like it's unmodifiable like because obviously for the majority of people the biggest stressors in their their life are probably going to be more we'll call it socioeconomic than yeah. other stuff you know it's more like my job my family my mortgage my you know all that kind of stuff um but there are still things obviously that you can do in terms of first of all like then if there's foods that you're just like look this causes me to 
you know, have a stress response, you're just maybe you're gluten intolerant or something, you're like, obviously you cut those out. Like this, that's a no brainer. But also if there's like, uh, we, we could argue that calories, like dropping your calories, you know, is a, a stressor. And so maybe that's not something you need to do. Maybe it is, you need to be at a, a maintenance level of calories or you need to, you know, prioritize getting the calories down first of all so that you get body composition changes accepting that that's going to have a trade-off of increased stress for a time period and then you're going to eat at a maintenance level of calories so that you know you can maintain your body weight in the healthy range and um, but also again a surplus of calories is also a stressor you know you have to digest it you have to do all that stuff so again you you have to consider where you are in relation to other stuff but like you were talking about with caffeine you could obviously again if you're saying i'm highly stressed because you know, i'm worried about my financial situation don't be hammering 20 cups of coffee per day then like, again like, why are you piling more stress on right same with training if you're in a stress situation or stressed situation because of work family all that stuff like don't be doing some german volume training six days per week you know like that's that's just not a smart move you know so look at the minimal effective dose, get your training stress down. Now, training is a bit of a hard one because, you know, longer term, it is, um, you know, beneficial for stress management. Um, but again, if we're talking about a situation where you know you're overly stressed for a period of time, you know, maybe you do have to go on an easier period of training, you know? Like, again, it has to be appropriate for your your overall life where you are right now and what you're trying to do basically don't try to fucking you know gun it career-wise family-wise and then also try to gun it um training-wise like again there's there has to be this little bit of a trade-off and if you are going to really push training and be like this is you know i'm really going hard with it i want to i know squat 500 pounds or whatever like the rest of your life stress has to be on point to facilitate that you know um again that's not to say that you you can't get good results while you are stressed but i'm just saying that it's probably not the most beneficial for your health if if that's the case you know but i'm also not saying well just don't train if you uh, are stressed that's that's also not beneficial you know it might be beneficial for a week to do that where you're like i just need to hammer through some work and i just can't get training this this week and that's fine but if it's a chronic thing then again something something has to give um but there are modifiable things with regards to stress that you can actually do you know again getting to sleep is one of them um getting your diet on point get like caffeine intake like there are stuff that you can do so while you can't perhaps you know deal with the the socioeconomic stress that you're under you still have some modifiable things and that's what you have to look to you know i'm not going to say like you see people being like completely outlandish and they're like oh your job's job's stressful i'll get a different job like that's like that's in my mind i'm like that's just the stupidest advice ever you know like what if you're a ceo of a company you're like earning fucking i don't know a million per year or something and you're just really stressed out uh over just because you're running the company and someone's like yeah yeah just get a different job if the stress is too much that's terrible advice you know like you're doing this so you can support your family and like yeah you're willing to have these trade-offs like gary said and be like i'm going to be more stressed now with this job but it leads to me bringing home the bacon and as a result you know my family being prosperous you know generating generational wealth if you will you know so again you need to take all of this stuff into account, especially when you're talking about stress. And again, I know it can be very hard to really dial in and modify your stress when so many of the stressors are just out of your control. It's just life. But there are stuff that you can control. Yeah, and importantly, like here as well, we have to really, really be clear on like acute versus chronic. And I don't just mean acute as in like 
a week or a day. I mean, acute as in five years, you know? So, I mean, when I, when I discuss, you know, the trade-off that I'm willing to accept in terms of like quality of life in the short term and stress I'll deal with in the, in the short term, I'm also thinking about the fact that if I'm set up financially and I've, you know, done my job for my family and stuff in 20, 30 years, you know, and I'm, and I'm in my fifties, I'm in my sixties and I'm like, you know, I've got the freedom to, to slow down, to chill out, you know, to have that, have that bit of freedom longer term, that that's actually, that's actually something you do need to keep in mind as a young person. And I'm more comfortable saying this to young people around kind of our ages, like one of the, the really good things to, to kind of avoid some of the detrimental effects of chronic stress in the long term, get your shit together and get in the path. You know, it's, it's, it's easy, it's easy to say, but it is one of those things where like, the solution here if you if you don't have your life together right so you know you're you're still living at home you have no source of income or your source of income is not one that you see being for the long term when you wake up each morning you're like i actually fucking have no purpose in life you know if that's your thought and you're just like yeah i'm just i'm getting my entertainment minute to minute and you know that you've got this this background anxiety and stress that's there because you know you're not on the path you don't have your shit together you're always procrastinating you're never getting your your shit done the solution there where you've got stress because you're not doing what you should be doing is not to say, oh, I should relax and do less. <laughs> like, like that's clearly not the solution in that context. So you have to actually consider what are the sources of my stress and how does that relate to the long term? Because that individual, if they take the foot off the gas and, and they, they already have nothing, then you stay having nothing. It's very, very, very different to the person who is longer term. If they're a workaholic and they already have what they need, they have the option to say, I can actually pull back a bit. I can do part-time. I can do more teaching instead of working or those sorts of things. Um, so you have to keep that in mind too, because it's very comfortable to say, oh, I don't want to live a stressful life. But realistically, you do have to live a stressful life for some period of time if you want to have an unstressful life in the long term. And that's that's basically comes back to that phrase that we repeat all of the time and that will be the topic of our next podcast, which is discipline equals freedom. If you can have the discipline to endure kind of eating shit in the short term, you'll get the freedom in the long term of having, you know, kids that you've supported, for, you've supported well, you know, that that had what they needed and that you have the funds to be able to send them off to college or whatever they want to do um, and and all those sorts of things that that actually matter in the long term. 100% Gary. Anyway, I have nothing else to say about diet and lifestyle with regards to blood pressure. Um, we can definitely go off on some fucking tangent if you want. However, no. I don't think people generally want that. Um, <laughs> um, so, to do a recap, basically, eat a healthy diet. Don't stress when you don't need to stress. Get your sleep. Get your veggies. Calorie appropriateness. You know, Eat the calories that are appropriate for your goals. And all of a sudden, your blood pressure is either under control or stays under control. Like, as much as this is actually a big issue in terms of for health, the actual solution is rather simple. Yep. Right? In theory, now actually in practice, when you're trying to get your eight hours of sleep per night, um, or you know, eat, stay on the path with your diet, or you know, get your exercise in, like it can be very, very difficult. You know, however, in theory, when we're just discussing it. The solution is is pretty straightforward. Eat well, exercise, and don't stress and get your sleep. You know? Yep. And key point, it still mightn't work. <laughs> you still might have high blood pressure at the end. You still might take on all this exercise stuff and have the perfect lifestyle. And you still might have high blood pressure. At that point, you know, it might be the case that you say, hey, doc, you know, I've tried. 
but uh hit me with those ACE inhibitors or hit me with whatever you think is the next step. Because the goal is, the goal is not just to be able to say, I did what I could for my blood pressure. The goal is to reduce your risk of morbidity and mortality long-term and live a better quality or longer life. So, I mean, yeah, I want to live to maybe 120, I think would be good. You know, like the, if I die before that, it's kind of bad for our image. Of you course. Know? Like obviously for a health and fitness company and I'm dying at like, 90 or something like that you know that doesn't look good for our company it will be pretty weak yeah you know so i have to i have to survive to like at least 120 so if that's the case like you know i was getting high blood pressure and i'm doing all this stuff right like give me the drugs bro i mean oh yeah one one final thing actually that you mentioned drugs there is one weird thing that does actually one weird trick, one weird trick to massively increase your blood pressure um, it might actually be relevant to someone in the audience. Basically, licorice is terrible for your blood pressure, and it actually does legit hugely uh, or very significantly increase your blood pressure. So, like, that's mainly relevant if you're someone who you just happen to be one of those weirdos who's addicted to licorice, you know, because there are those anecdotes. Also terrible for your testosterone as well. So, yeah. You know <laughs> there, but there are those anecdotal stories. Uh, you can look up case reports and stuff where, like, you're trying to find the cause of someone's blood pressure. And then it was like, oh, this uh, this patient actually had a, a licorice addiction. They're consuming two or 300 grams a day. So if that is you, not great. There's also these Dutch sweets. One of my friends in my classes, well, he's actually from South Africa, but he was, he was in um, Holland and he brought back these sweets that were like uh, licorice, but also like with ridiculously high salt. So they just taste like salt and licorice. And I'm, I was thinking, I was like, man, that should be just drugs for people with low blood pressure. Just hand them out, easy. <laughs> <laughs> so don't scoff on them either maybe if you want to if you want to i don't care you know see how you can get it bro same as if we're talking about drugs just steroids in general not great for your blood pressure yes actually yeah that's worth that's worth mentioning just don't take a load of gear certain drugs as well which i'm not going to get into are also way worse than other drugs and you can generally see this by virtue of the people who take those drugs are purple rather than normal human skin color but what's worse is that it's not it's not even just like those effects so you can have like all the effects in terms of like increased hematocrit and blood viscosity and blood pressure but that's also coupled with all the awful effects on your blood lipids and then taking a load of stimulants that increase your risk of having an event independent of any of those other changes so it's basically just a big massive pool of things that uh if you wanted to die from a heart attack you'd, you'd say hey i'm gonna take all these drugs man there you go anyway do what you want. we definitely will go off on a tangent if we keep talking so we're gonna wrap this up here yeah where can people find us what services do we offer and you know why should people you know sign up with us do whatever you know you know yourself gary yeah so guys as you as you'll know if you've been listening to the last few episodes of the podcast we are currently working in the background um on the coaches corner which is going to be a membership site dedicated to personal trainer education essentially um, and interested trainees i always like to include those people um basically what we're going to be doing there is providing you know a lot of the information that's actually of relevance in terms of anatomy, mechanics, physiology, uh, nutrition, nutrition theory, etc., but also really applying that stuff in terms of where does, in, does this information apply with exercise planning, with exercise selection, exercise execution, uh, making different nutrition decisions. You know, how do you 
how do you uh, decide, you know, when you're going to change calories for someone or this client comes to you and they have back pain, what are you going to do? Case study based stuff. So a lot of stuff is going to be in there. Um, and if you are interested, what you can do at the moment is one, if you if you're if you're thinking, I don't really know, Gary, that's a vague description. Join the Triage Method community, which is our free Facebook group. And what you can do in there is you can start to see some excerpts that we're putting in there. So we'll be popping in some slides um, from basically the Coach's Corner content so that you have a, an idea of what's going to be in there um, in advance. And then in addition to that, you can join by pre-registering your interest rather um, in the link below. You'll be added to an email list, which basically just tells us you're interested. So when the service is being launched, we'll send you uh, the first information and uh, a discount as we get the ball rolling. So that discount will only be accessible to those who are on the list. It does not mean that you have to sign up. It just means that you'll be eligible for a discount uh, once we do get the ball rolling with that. So that's the Coach's Corner. And as I said, Facebook group, join it regardless of whether or not you're interested in the Coach's Corner. Join the Triage Method email list. Uh, you can subscribe to that below and we'll send you out all the, inf all the interesting resources that we think are useful from around the internet, but also all the content that we have produced throughout the week. Um, what I might do is start popping in some uh, excerpts from the Coach's Corner into the newsletter as well. So, you know, if you're not on Facebook, um, that's something that a lot of people do report that they're not on Facebook, to, but they want to keep up, join the newsletter and I'll, I'll try and make sure that you get those insights too. Um, and then, of course, follow the social medias, um, in particular, YouTube, if you consider that social media, subscribe on YouTube. It really does help us out um, in terms of the videos getting more views um, and you will obviously be able to keep up with the content that we are posting because we're posting lots of different uh, diverse content uh, on YouTube. Uh, and then Instagram and Facebook as well, if you'd like to like the page or follow, just so it gives us a little bit of a helping hand in terms of uh, our message reaching more people. And one thing we fail to mention a lot of the time is the podcast as well. So do subscribe to the podcast and leave a review because that does really help. Um, if you if you listen to or if you subscribe to the podcast, it increases the chance that our podcast will come up in recommendations when people listen to similar podcasts. So um, it helps us out when you do that. And if you do enjoy the episode, do share it on your social media too. Wonderful, Gary. You have such a soothing voice when you're selling our services I have been told that anyway i have nothing else to say so uh it's too easy it is literally too easy <laughs>